Good morning, church. Hi, uh, my name is Bill Marsh, and I have the pleasure of bringing you the scripture reading today. We'll be reading out of Numbers, chapter 24, verses 15 through 25. It's known as the Oracle of Balaam. And he took up his discourse and said, The Oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the Oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the Oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him now, I'm sorry, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Seth, Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed, Seir also, his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. Then he looked on Amalek and took up his discourse and said, Amalek was the first among the nations, but its end is utter destruction. And he looked on the Kenite and took up his discourse and said, Enduring is your dwelling place, and your nest is set in the rock. Nevertheless, Cain shall be burned when Asher takes you away captive. And he took up his discourse and said, Alas, who shall live when God does this? But ships shall come from Kittim and shall afflict Asher and Eber, and he too shall come to utter destruction. Then Balaam rose and went back to his place, and Balak also went his way. All right, thank you, Bill. Let's pray. Lord, we um, as a church are just longing for um, a greater glimpse of your glory and for greater wonder to explode in our hearts uh, over this Christmas season where we celebrate God becoming human. And, and so, Lord, pray that this prophecy, this sort of obscure prophecy would come alive to us this morning and uh, give us, Lord, a, um, a fresh glimpse into what you have done for us. And so speak to us this morning, Lord, whether we are near you, walking with you, or far and just wondering, doubting, skeptical, whatever. Lord, meet us where we're at, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm very, very excited to begin our uh, Christmas sermon series, uh, Unwrapping Christmas, with you this morning. All month long, we're going to be focusing in on the incarnation of Jesus. And uh, so, and then we've got special things planned for you next week. We're going to have uh, elementary kids, uh, Sunday school kids, singing for us. They could do a piece of their program, and I'm looking forward to that. Greg and Glenda Bostock have been... Uh, prepping them along with Jenny Swafford. And, uh, and then on Sunday the 18th, it's Acoustic Christmas where we set up in the round out in the middle and play acoustic guitars and mandolins and uh, do Christmas songs together. And then uh, Christmas Eve candlelight service, 5.30 p.m. And then Sunday morning, the results are in. We will be having Christmas Day service at 11 a.m. 
So, you know, it, it's sort of, yeah, the, those of you who voted for 11 are like, woo! The rest of us are like, so actually, it was very close uh, between a number of the times, and so, uh, but we said we would do this democratically. We have done it that way. So 11 o'clock it is. It'll be awesome. Jesus's birthday will be celebrated. Well, people around the world have various different traditions surrounding Christmas and their celebrations. And uh, I, I like to every now and then peruse what other countries do. And Christmas is celebrated almost globally to one degree or another. In Norway, for instance, um, Norwegian folklore advises that people hide their mops and their brooms on Christmas Day because they believe that evil spirits will use the brooms and mops. It will be an entry point for them to come into the world and they will use mops and brooms to fly around the world. So it's a very heartwarming tradition. And uh, now Christmas isn't that big of a deal in Japan. Um, Japan is a is very small percentage of Christians there. But three to four million Japanese celebrate Christmas by going to Kentucky Fried Chicken. It's, it's like a big deal there. And KFC, they do a special, you know, Christmas decorated bucket and the, the whole thing. In Germany, a glass pickle ornament is hidden in a Christmas tree and whoever can find the pickle will get an extra present. I don't make it up, I just deliver it. Okay, in Caracas, Venezuela, I thought this was kind of fun. On Christmas Day, people who live in Caracas, they don't drive to church in cars, they roller skate. Everybody roller skates. In fact, they close down uh, a number of city streets so that everybody can roller skate to church. Maybe we ought to rollerblade next year. In Austria, they have a, a creature, kind of a devilish, ghoulish creature called Krampus. And Krampus is kind of the evil counterpart to Santa Claus and just like demonic kind of face. And he is said to wander the streets uh, on Christmas Eve looking for badly behaved children. And, uh, and so during the month of December, if you're in Austria, you can expect to see, it's typically young guys with masks on, running around trying to scare everybody. And uh, again, another heartwarming tradition. So I think they got Halloween uh, mixed up uh, with Christmas. But we have many traditions here, and a lot of our families, you have a unique tradition to your Christmas celebration. But one of the traditions common uh, to most of us is that of a Christmas tree, and to uh, still many of us too, is a star on top of the tree. And, and typically, Christians believe that that's representing the Bethlehem star, the Christmas star that led the wise men, that alerted them that they were in the right place to find Jesus, the newborn king. Well, this morning, our passage is known as the star prophecy, and it was uttered by a guy named Balaam, 
And Balaam is a very interesting character. I mean, he is a tough guy to kind of figure out. Uh, I remember it was uh, Winston Churchill who many years ago, uh, he said famously about Russia, it's a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. You know, he, he, it was 1939, he was saying that you, you, I can't figure out why Russia was doing what they are doing. I can't figure them out. So the truth about who they were and why they did what they did was, was buried underneath logic somewhere. And so too in our passage, we're introduced to a guy that's really tough to figure out. It's hard to make sense of Balaam. Balaam is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. He's mentioned more in the Bible than Mary, the mother of Jesus. Uh, he's mentioned 60 times or so in scripture. Seven different books of the Bible mention him. He is a prophet. He seeks God concerning decisions that he makes. He hears from God. He speaks for God. Uh, kind of like... Pam and my kids, they, they were enigmatic uh, kids when they were growing up. They were all different, all of their own thing. But years ago, when, when the kids were little, um, I found a big wad of gum that was stuck on the windowsill. And, um, and you know, just stuck there. It was, you know, it was just a mess. And so I uh, wanted to capture the culprit, you know, out of our five kids. And I, I knew the two primary suspects. The two littlest boys at the time, Luke and Josh, and uh, and so so I called him in for interrogation, and I knew right away that it was Luke. I mean, I just knew it. Like he was a bad liar, and um, so but but I questioned them, and they both denied it vehemently. Right? They're like, No, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. So I said, All right, here's what you're gonna do. Both of you are gonna go into our bedroom. You're gonna talk it over. We know. I know that one of you did it, and if 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 the one of you who who did it will just confess, no swats, no punishment. We're just going to kind of work this out together. So all you need to do is confess. And so Josh immediately is going, or thinking rather, man, I don't deserve a swat. So he speaks up and said, dad, you can't swat me. You can't swat me because I didn't do it. But I, I held to my plan, I said, boy, just go work it out, and the one of you who did it, just confess, and it'll, it'll all be good. So they go into my bedroom, and I put my ear to the door, and I hear Josh, just trying to persuade Luke to confess. Come on, Luke, come on, I, I don't want to get a swat for something I didn't do, and, but to no avail. Luke would not give in, and so the door opens, and they come out, and Josh I know he's just thinking, there's no way I'm going to get a swat for this. So he looks at me and he declares with great prophetic kind of authority. He says, the Lord spoke to my heart. Luke did it. <laughs> well, Balaam, he hears from God, and he speaks for God. We have the record of scripture on that. Yet he's not a Jew. He doesn't dwell with God's people. He lives in Midian amongst enemies, the enemies of God. He has a reputation of being powerful in his prophetic ministry, uh, pronouncing blessings upon people or curses upon others. 
And in our passage this morning, he declares a most interesting prophecy about a star who would be born. The star is a, is a person, obviously. And here's what you need to know. In Balaam's day, stars were always associated with deity. They represented gods. So stars represented the gods and the goddesses of the various peoples. Now you see this all over in archaeology there. So on the architecture, ancient architecture, you'll see stars and the stars represent the deities of the day. And so the star is perhaps the most common symbol for deity in the Old Testament in the ancient times. The Bible mentions it, for instance, in Amos chapter 5, verse 26, where God's speaking to the house of Israel, you shall take up uh, Sikath your king and Kayun your star god, your images that you made for yourself. Your star god. So Balaam the prophet and then King Balak of the Moabite king who hired him, and we'll get into that story in a second, they would have been fully aware of the meaning of Balaam's prophecy. So, so high upon Mount Nebo slash Mount Pisgah, Balaam and Balak are looking down over God's people Israel gathered in the Jordan River Valley, and as they're looking down, Balaam the prophet says this, just one verse, Numbers 24, 17, look, he says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So there's Balak the king and Balaam the prophet looking down upon the people of God, and Balaam pronounces this prophecy a star and a scepter. I see him, but not now. He's going to come out, but not yet. Balaam prophesied that a God king would be born out of this people. A star, meaning deity. A scepter, meaning a rule and a reign, real authority. A God king is going to come out of this people that I'm looking at right now. Well, let's get a little bit of the backstory. Uh, a lot of you are familiar with this, some of you are not. Um, but there's backstory to the star prophecy. Balaam, uh, this enigmatic guy, uh, had been hired by Balak, the king of Moab. And so, God's people, Israel, are fresh off military victories. They've been set free from Egypt, and they've had some military victories over the Canaanites, the Amorites, and they're now in the backyard of, uh, of, of King Balak uh, and uh, the Midianites. And Balak the king realizes, you know, I, I don't think I can beat them militarily. And so, uh, so he sends a group of influential men to go talk to Balaam the prophet. And he wants to employ Balaam the prophet to come and pronounce a curse on God's people, the armies of Israel. And so the influential men go to Balaam the prophet and say, hey, King Balak wants to hire you. And, uh, and Balaam goes and talks to God and, you know, says, wait here, let me go talk to God. And he does so. And God says, don't go. 
And so Balaam sends this group of guys back saying, you know, tell Balak no. And Balak doesn't take no for an answer, so he sends now another group, uh, this time the most famous uh, influential man in Midian to talk to Balaam and pronounce, uh, you know, talk him into pronouncing the curse. They have a blank check with them telling Balaam, you fill in the amount, buddy. <laughs> like, you come and do this and you're writing your own ticket, okay? And so Balaam says, wait here, I need to talk to God about it. And he does, and God says, go ahead. But know this, you're only going to say what I want you to say. So this is where the story starts to get a little weird. Balaam is like, "Woo! I got me a payday coming. And off he goes to go meet with King Balak. And he saddles up his donkey and away they go. And Balaam's donkey is apparently much more spiritually discerning than is Balaam himself because on their way to King Balak, the donkey sees the angel of the Lord and standing in the way, so he veers off of the path in order to avoid hitting the angel of the Lord, and Balaam didn't see what the donkey saw, so Balaam gets mad and just whacks the donkey. And off they go again. They come to two vineyards, and once again, the angel of the Lord is standing in the way. This time, the donkey jerks to one side and smashes uh, Balaam's foot uh, into the, the a stone wall. Balaam whacks his donkey again, and uh, they come to a very narrow passageway. Once again, the angel of the Lord is standing in the way. This time, the donkey gets down on all fours and essentially taps out, like, that's it, I'm done. And Balaam starts to beat his donkey. Again, Balaam did not see what the donkey saw, <laughs> which brings up, I think, a little bit of a warning for us. Sometimes donkeys see what a prophet misses. And I think it probably happens more often than we know. You may look at your parents or your coach or your boss or your spouse or whatever and think, those donkeys, what do they know? Be careful. You may consider yourself a prophet, a spiritual person, but it may be the donkey that's seeing things clearly. Well, what did Balaam do when the donkey veered away and tapped out? Balaam was incensed, began to beat his poor donkey, and the donkey in the midst of the beating looks up to Balaam and says, what have I done to you that you're treating me like this? Now, you would think that this might be a moment for Balaam to go, whoa, that's amazing, my donkey just talked to me. But he doesn't, he doesn't skip a beat, he's beating his donkey and, and he, he speaks right back and says, listen, you made a fool out of me, man. If I had a sword, I'd kill you. And the donkey begins to reason with Balaam the prophet and says, haven't I been a good donkey to you? I mean, let's look at my record here. Balaam says, well, yeah. And it was at that moment the Lord spoke to Balaam, the prophet, and said, you better be glad your donkey 
did what your donkey did. Because otherwise, you'd be a dead man right now. Oh, Lord, I'm sorry. I'll turn around and go back if you want. And the Lord says, no, keep going. But remember, you're only going to say what I give you to say. So Balaam continues on. He finally connects with King Balak of the Midianites. After building altars and sacrificing to God, Balaam attempts to curse God's people. But instead of cursing them, they're on the mountain looking down at God's people encamped. Opens his mouth to curse them. Instead of cursing them, a blessing comes out. Now, Balak, the king, hired Balaam to curse Israel, and the guy he hired is pronouncing a blessing on Israel instead, which obviously makes him mad. And so Balaam says, let me, let me try it again. They go to another place on the mountain, and he tries to curse God's people again, and once again, a blessing comes out instead. They go to a third place. They sacrifice animals to the Lord, and Balaam gives it a third shot, and again, blessing comes out instead, and now King Balak is so ticked off that he claps his hands together, Numbers 24.10, Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam the prophet, and he struck his hands together, and Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies, and behold, you've blessed them these three times. Now, flee to your own place. In other words, get out of here. I'm done with you. And you're going home with no money, too, by the way. But Balaam wasn't finished. He wasn't finished telling King Balak what would come out of his prophecy. So, Numbers 24, 15, Balaam took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God, knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Judah. So that is the star prophecy. Balaam in response to Balak the king, who's mad as a hornet, speaks this prophecy. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star, a God king will come out of those people and he will destroy. For centuries, skeptics thought Balaam did not exist. They thought he was one of those sort of mythical fairy tale uh, kind of figures and, and especially because in his story you have a talking donkey. <laughs> and, and so if you discount the miraculous, then anything miraculous in the Bible is discounted and it has to thus be categorized as myth or fairy tale. And so there was no archaeological evidence that uh, proved the existence of Balaam the prophet, that is, until 1967, when a man was digging in Deir Allah in Jordan and came across some fragments of a, uh, of a writing. And so 
How many of you know that archaeologists, they, they don't get so excited when they find gold and jewelry, but they get excited when they find writing. They get really excited. And so they found all these fragments, and they began to piece them together. And uh, the inscription dates back to about 750 B.C., and this, this uh, inscription is, is held today at the Archaeological Museum in Amman, Jordan. If you go to Israel with us next time, next year in February, we will visit there. We will look at this very, this very thing. And three times in this ancient text, there is a reference to Balaam, son of Beor of Pethor. Balaam's name his dad, his hometown. That's called a bullseye in archaeology. That's him, mentioned three times. And so now we have the Balaam account, not only in the Bible, but in ancient writings that verify the biblical account. So the, listen, the Bible's not myth and legend. It's historical and factual. So, Balaam prophesies that a God king will eventually emerge from these people and camp down there in the Jordan River Valley, and emerge he did. 14 to 1500 years later, uh, on the other side of the Jordan River, uh, in, a, in a little podunky, insignificant town called Bethlehem, the God king was born. And he would grow up in a small town up in northern Israel, about 80 miles away. And he uh, was part of a blue-collar family that went to work every day to make ends meet. He didn't do anything really significant until he was 30 years old, when all of a sudden he began preaching about a kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And he began to heal people by the dozens He began to open blind eyes and unstop deaf ears. He even raised dead people back to life. Demons feared him and obeyed him. Religious people, many of them, hated him. He claimed to be God, which is the claim that would get him killed in the most ugly, gruesome humiliating way possible. How can a dead king reign? Well, he didn't stay dead. <laughs> he rose from death. He ascended into heaven. He now reigns from heaven. It's not an external reign. It's an internal reign. He reigns in the hearts of the people who trust him and put their faith in him. And the Holy Spirit, right now, this very moment, works mysteriously and invisibly to draw more and more people to this God King, the star prophecy. And he will return to the earth one day and his rain will become physical and his kingdom physical and actual upon this earth. The God King is, like, is unlike any other king. And so he's called in the Bible the King of Kings. Now, think about this. As You know, the Roman Empire is, is dominating and taking more and more terri ter territory, becoming the greatest empire really the world has ever known. 
this is the world that Jesus was born into. There have been others who have claimed to be God kings. The Egyptians and their pharaohs were considered gods and demanded to be worshipped as gods and so on. But in the Roman Empire, that was not so until a certain point. And so there was a guy named Julius Caesar back in, oh, I want to say around 40 BC. He was a very powerful architect of the Roman Empire. He was eventually assassinated by Brutus and Cassius. You history guys uh, know this stuff. But uh, Octavian, his nephew, uh, rises to power through some intrigue and some more, you know, uh, drama. And he... Octavian rises to power, and he calls a guy named Herod to rule over Judea. And Herod becomes very powerful, a very great uh, leader in many senses, a great builder. And, uh, and Octavian goes to Rome, and he becomes the, the ruler of all of the Roman Empire. And he takes the title Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus, and this is the point, this is the, the pinpoint when he establishes what is known as the imperial cult, the imperial cult. So in other words, he declares himself God, and he demands that all people in the Roman Empire worship him. This was a major turning point in history, a major turning point in the first century. And so Herod the Great, ruler of Judea, Israel, builds three magnificent temples to Caesar Augustus, the God King. So these magnificent temples are going up, not just in Judea, but all over the world as the world is commanded to worship the God King, Caesar Augustus. In these temples, there would be the statue of Caesar Augustus, the, the God King who ruled the world and so on. And, and later when there became Christians, they would be demanded, go in and pinch uh, some incense and say, Caesar is Lord. They were all over the place. But think about what that looked like to the people of the world and to the people especially of Israel, the Jews. They see temples going up everywhere. They see this man claiming to be the God King this star, this scepter, all of this is happening while the true star and scepter is born in the hills of a little insignificant town. It's not a coincidence that the first Roman emperor, the, the god emperor, is being worshipped all over the Roman Empire at the same time that Balaam, son of Beor's star prophecy from atop Mount Nebo is being fulfilled in Bethlehem in Judea. It's not a coincidence. Satan always is providing a counterfeit. Always. Who would have looked more like the divine king, the God king? Caesar Augustus, with all of the temples, with all of the power over all of the Roman Empire, 
or the slowly baby born to a carpenter from northern Israel up in the Galilee. They're poor. The Bible predicts that there will be a deception far greater than that of the imperial cult of Rome. The deception that will accompany the world's final ruler prior to Jesus' return, the Antichrist, will be unlike anything the world has ever seen. So don't let Jesus' humility <laughs> throw you. Jesus Christ is the only true God King. And so the question becomes, is he your king? Is he your king? So unlike the Caesars, Jesus doesn't force his rule upon you. You, you consent if you choose to. You have to consent to his rule. And once you do, if you do, you will realize that his rule over you is the most life-giving, joy-producing, love-inducing rule that there ever could possibly be. His love for you is spectacular, unlike any other king or any other person. In fact, our God-king's love for us is so spectacular and incomprehensible, really, that we need the help of the Holy Spirit to even get a clue of its dimensions. So let me read this to you out of Ephesians 16, and then we're almost done. Paul says, praying for us, by the way, he says that you would be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Ah, power. That's what we need, power as Christians. Why? that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Here's what you need the power of the Holy Spirit for, in this case at least, is to know God's love. It is so vast and magnificent, so just bewilderingly spectacular that we have to have supernatural help to even get a clue. And as I say this, I know some of you are just feeling like, well, he doesn't love me. Oh, my brother, my sister, this is why you need the Spirit. You need the Spirit of God to help you on this. He absolutely does. We can, we can spend so much of our thought life pushing these truths away and just rehearsing a negative old tape that's probably run ever since however many decades ago. It just runs in our brain when in fact we have the truth of what God really thinks about you. When you embrace the rule of the God King in your life, his love will be shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Spirit, and it will begin to compel you to love like he does. That's the way it works, but you can live, you can live in spiritual poverty. We have to make choices in the Christian life, and 
You, you know, Jude says, keep yourself in the love of God. In his book, uh, The Magnificent Defeat, Frederick Buchner, he writes this, quote, love for equals is a human thing. A friend for a friend, brother for a brother. It's love, uh, it's to love what is loving and lovely. The world smiles. The love for the less fortunate is a beautiful thing. The love for those who suffer, for those who are poor or sick, the failures, the unlovely. This is compassion and it touches the heart of the world. The love for the more fortunate is a rarer thing. To love those who succeed where we fail, to rejoice without envy with those who rejoice, to lo the love of the poor for the rich, of the black man for the white man. The world is always bewildered by its saints. And then there is the love for the enemy, love for the one who does not love you but mocks you and threatens you and inflicts pain on you. The love of the tortured for the torturer. This is God's love and it conquers the world. In Matthew 2 verse 1 it says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, who is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it arose and have come to worship him. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. The God King. A little baby at the time. Psalm 95 says, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. Let's pray. Lord, there, 1,500 times 2,000 years ago, was a strange prophet <laughs> with a strange story, strange background, and a talking donkey to boot. After failing to deliver on his promise to curse Israel for King Balak, he announces a glorious messianic prophecy. The star prophecy. A star will arise, a scepter from Jacob. Oh, I see him, but not yet. I know him, but not now. Lord, as we endeavor, Lord, to fix our eyes upon Jesus this Christmas season, we pray that you'll continue to unfold the scripture to us in a way that'll enlighten our eyes, 
And Lord, that will shape our character and our being. And so help us to be like the wise men who bowed and came with gifts. Lord, that we would have the same kind of heart to bow before our God King and to give gifts, in their case, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. In our case, time, treasure, talent, ability. Lord, your love is so powerful and potent. It melts our hearts and compels us to want to live out our life for you. And so have your way, Lord, this month, but have your way right now. And Lord, as we consider our lives in light of who you are as our King, I wonder, Lord, if there's some areas in our life that maybe we've been, I don't know, it's a little stubborn, <laughs> been a little reluctant to let go of some stuff that maybe you've been wanting to, to take from us. And whenever you take, Lord, it's never, it's never to bring sadness. It's always to further joy. It's always to bring greater freedom and liberty. It's it's always to work for good. And so that's, a, that's what it means to trust you with those things. So Lord, as we come to the table this morning, I pray that maybe there would be just some interaction between each of us and you as our God King. And maybe, maybe it just needs to be repentance. Maybe, Lord, I need to repent of... of my negative words and being critical and letting unwholesome kind of words coming out of my mouth. I know that that grieves you. Maybe I've been distant from my spouse and Lord, forgive me. Or Lord, I've been angry with my daughter or my son. So, Lord, give us the power this morning to forgive and to discover the joy of forgiveness. And so, Lord, as we go to the table, work in us by the Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're a believer here this morning, you can make your way to the communion table. Then Pastor Jeff is going to maybe encourage those of you who are not yet a Christian. In Acts 16, it tells the story of Paul and Silas and their imprisonment. And they prayed and sang songs throughout the night. And, and sometimes toward the, the dawn, an earthquake shook the prison that they were in. And it was like no other earthquake that you may have experienced because it, 
It busted open the jail cell doors and it busted off the shackles of those who were imprisoned, including Paul and Silas. And this, this terrified the jailkeeper because he was responsible for the prisoners and he was about ready to commit suicide because he knew that that's what awaited him. But then Paul cried out and said, no, we haven't left yet. And this touched the jailkeeper's heart. And he said, what must I do to be saved? And Paul's simple answer was, you must believe in Jesus Christ. And so if you've, if you've been hearing about this Jesus, whether you're, whether you're online or in, in, the, in, the stu- in the auditorium today, and you're feeling that tug, I do believe that Jesus, he did come to us through the virgin birth and he lived a sinless life and he, he took my sins on that cross on Calvary. I believe in all of that. <clears throat> if that's you, let's, let's pray. Just follow these words. Jesus, I do believe in you that your, your love for me displayed by, by your incarnation at Christmas time, that you would, you would stoop to come to us, Lord. I believe. So help me to follow you, Jesus, as I call you Lord and Savior. So I pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So if that was you, you can go ahead and make your way to the communion table too because your your faith in Jesus is what has saved you. And so sometime 33 years after Jesus' birth, he would bring his disciples to Jerusalem for the Passover. And as they met in that upper room, as it's recorded here, as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And so we'll do the same. He blessed it. Thank you. Thank you, Father God, for for that word blessed means in transfer or a conferring of life and so it was your body Lord that conferred life to us and so we we, we thank you for that life that, that we partake of that we were reminded of as we partake in Jesus name amen it goes on to record that, that Jesus took the cup and he gave thanks for it and he said drink from it all of you for this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, you will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So not only are we gathered here celebrating this this unwrapping Christmas and a time of Advent looking forward to celebrating Jesus' birth, we're also looking forward for Jesus' return and for that moment when we can share this meal with him personally. So, Father, we thank you for the blessing conference of life that comes from Jesus' blood. And so bless you, Jesus, as we partake. It's in your name. Amen.